Well, good evening. So good to be with all of you guys tonight. Um, and so excited, uh, not only to be here, which I am always excited to be able to be here, but um, so excited to be able to spend some time together exploring the glorious wonders of what God, in his grace toward us, unpacked in this sacred and wondrous thing called his word that, that gives us everything our human soul will ever need to know for our faith to be full and sustained. Really excited to explore that. Um, for those of you that uh, don't know, my name is Renault, and uh, I am one of the pastors uh, at Mosaic Church, and this is one of our spaces as part of Mosaic, so it's always a grand privilege to be here with you guys and have the opportunity uh, to explore with you guys God's Word um, as well. Um, and um, our journey, uh, as we find ourselves today uh, in a passage in a book in the Bible uh, called First Timothy, uh, our journey to get to this passage in this book has been 17 years in the making. Um, because 17 years ago, we started in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, uh, and we have uh, historically, chronologically been walking our way through the entirety of Scripture, the whole story, for 17 years now. Uh, and we have found ourselves in that historical unfolding story uh, in the place where Paul uh, is sitting and he is penning a letter to Timothy to instruct Timothy to instruct the church in Ephesus on some things that matter a great deal. And so uh, we come to this place in this extraordinary letter uh, that is not only to the church in Ephesus, but also we now know is intended for churches throughout history because God, in his sovereignty, decided that this letter would be included in the extraordinary sacred wonder of scripture. And so the letter, though it was certainly for Timothy, for Ephesus, it is now also for Timothy, for Ephesus, for us. And so we come to this letter uh, with a clarity of a larger, broader story than just this letter and just this context. We have been traveling with Paul and his journey since we were in the middle of the book of Acts. Uh, we have traveled with Paul into his heart and soul through many of the letters that he wrote, uh, and we have had the privilege of traveling through those. And so as we enter this space of First Timothy uh, and we enter this passage we're in, we enter it with a great context of what is unfolding here. So this particular letter, 1 Timothy, for those of you that have been traveling with us, and for, uh, this is a recap for those of you that are here, fairly new, this will kind of catch you up very briefly to where we're at. So um, the church in Ephesus struggling with some false teachers. Uh, Timothy was left or sent by Paul to the church in Ephesus, a church Paul loved dearly and was deeply connected to um, because he had spent a great deal of time there in his past. Uh, he, uh, he has Timothy going to this church uh, to confront them, to um, charge them, to redirect them so that they might be a church that is living out their lives in a manner that reflects and is worthy of the gospel and fulfills the purpose of what God created us 
uh, the church for and the people that we are, the people that are the followers of Jesus. And so uh, this letter uh, is a personal letter from one Paul to another, Timothy, not actually a letter written to a church, makes it a little different. Uh, And so we expect in this letter that there's a lot that goes on in this letter where the context, uh, Paul does not bother to expand too much because he is making the assumption, as he rightly should, that Timothy completely understands the context. And so for us, what becomes important is that we have a broader context of Paul and how he thinks and what he says in other books. And so tonight, you will see as we explore this little teeny tiny passage within this one book, uh, we are going to have to launch out to several other spaces in which Paul uh, has been articulating his heart and the spirit of God's heart so that we can fully grasp what's going on in this one teeny tiny passage. So first and foremost, for us to grasp what's going on in this passage and not to experience it by itself and therefore misinterpret its purpose in this particular space, we need to be reminded of the context that we're in in Timothy. So when Paul started this letter in the very early parts of this letter, in the introduction practically, uh, he said to Timothy, hey, Timothy, uh, the aim, the purpose of our charge, of our challenge to the church in Ephesus is singular, and that aim is love. Everything I'm going to write in this letter, every hard thing I'm going to say, every difficult calling I'm going to call the church into, every confrontation you're going to have to have, it is not for rightness, it is not for correctness, it is not for behavior, it is not uh, for law, it is for love. Love, that is our aim. Why? Because central to the kingdom of God, which is what kingdom we are now part of, citizens of and belong to, a kingdom we as the followers of Jesus are on this planet to represent, to be ambassadors of, that kingdom, its foundational reality is love. Everything born out of that kingdom, all of the light, the life, and the freedom uh, is captured in its foundation by this thing we know as love, a a reality that is the very nature of what brought God to redeem us. And so God's unconditional love for us, then our being recipients of that unconditional love and his redemption creates room by the power of his spirit and the revelation of his word and the awe of our redemption to have love one for another to the point eventually in our maturing where that becomes almost unconditional, uh, hopefully even perhaps someday unconditional, but a movement toward the love of God's kingdom and unconditional love. And then our collective love for the world where we are not against them, they not against us, but even if they were to be our enemies, behave as our enemies while we were his enemies, he died for us and gave his life for us. And so we are now called into the same. So Paul says, the aim of this letter is love. It is to help you, the church, me, the church, remember and engage in a right love for each other, a right love for the world and a right love for God. And then as he moves through the letter, uh, he gets to about the middle of the letter Uh, And in the middle of the letter, what we know as chapter three, of course, in the letter, there were no chapters. The chapters just help us situate where we are in the letter. About the middle of the letter, uh, he says to Timothy, hey, um, I am looking forward to coming to you in Ephesus. But 
on the off chance that I am delayed and I can't make it in a timely manner, uh, part of the reason I am writing this letter is not only to tell you that the aim is love, but to help you charge the church with what that love needs to look like. In other words, what the behaviors need to be that would demonstrate and, uh, and would, uh, would, would um, allow for the love that comes out of us to be the love of God's kingdom, not the love defined by whichever culture or kingdom you happen to be uh, part of on this planet. Depending on when you were born or when I was born, the, the reality of love would have been defined in its own way because cultures, uh, year of a year, century of a century, change the definition of love constantly and even within a single culture, it changes constantly. So what Paul is saying is, the aim is love, but the love I'm talking about is a love that is of one kingdom and one kind of love. And I want to teach you what that love looks like. And that is what kind of sets us up to move into the part of the letter that we have been in most recently. Uh, In chapter four of the letter, where Paul is now moving into the back end of the letter, uh, he tells Timothy, what I'm going to write down that you're needing to charge the church with is going to be a little difficult at times because it's going to call them into a violation of self-preservation, a violation of what is typically that which drives us because we are part of a culture uh, that has been driven by that culture's things. And now God's kingdom is going to come and say, that's not how my kingdom functions and not what it looks like. So Timothy, you're going to teach some things and it's not always going to be easy for the church to hear it, but teach them diligently because a good servant of Christ, a good teacher is going to teach diligently despite the fact that it might be difficult to hear. He even bothers to say in chapter four, some may even leave when you say the things you do, but don't worry, that was already prophesied and predicted as God wrote that some will abandon the realities of following Jesus, either abandoning the faith or uh, to look for a version of faith that will tickle their ears. Your part, Timothy, is to teach this because it is God's kingdom's values, his way, and it is what will ultimately demonstrate and affect uh, the kind of love that brings light, life, and freedom to the world. And then chapter five happens. In chapter five, um, Paul lays out uh, a dynamic within the relationships of those in the church who follow Jesus. So this is a beautiful space, chapter five, where he's talking to those in the church that follow Jesus that are part of church and saying, how do you behave toward one another that will not look like the way the world behaves toward one another or how you might have once behaved toward another? And he sets a premise in chapter five this way. He says, uh, starts with those who are older and those who are younger. And let's just be honest, you know, as, as, as we talk about this, you know this, you feel it in every generation that I have studied or known of, including the ones we have the privilege of living in, there is always a clash between the old and the young, right? The old think the young are foolish and stupid and don't know what they're doing and need to be corrected. And the young think the old are foolish and stupid and don't know what they're doing and should just go out and play golf and pick up shells, right? Um, and and, And so we have this constant relational dynamic where when we look at the way older people think, we're just like, you have no idea. And older people look at the way the younger generations think and go, they are going to drive themselves off a cliff and kill everyone. And, 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 and that is the, 
norm in the societal reality because we have such differing vantage points and viewpoints. But in God's kingdom, the intent is actually that those differing viewpoints and vantages, uh, 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 vantage points actually affect a broader and more beautiful wisdom and growth for all. And so what he says is, listen, in, in my kingdom, those two worlds don't oppose each other. They actually seek each other out. And the way they deal with each other is like family deals with family because they are family. And so he starts out by saying, this is about recognizing that within the church, we who follow Jesus are now what? One of you said it, and that's beautiful, but we are in this together, right? What are we? Family. It's a big deal. It sounds like a little thing. Of course, we're family because we're Christian. No, it's a really big deal because it changes everything as we begin to process that. We're family. And so we're dealing with each other as family. And then for the rest of chapter five, coming out of the older generation and the younger generation, he moves into those in the church that are vulnerable, the widows in this particular case, he uses an example, and those that are not vulnerable and how the vulnerable are treated by those who are not vulnerable instead of being abused, misused, uh, uh, taken advantage of. Uh, in a family, those in the family that are vulnerable get loved on uniquely with actually a greater zeal, right? And because we are a family, when they are vulnerable among us, we treat the vulnerable not as something to be taken advantage of or someone to be taken advantage of, but someone to actually pour into. And so he deals with widows. And then he moves into the structure within this family that is the structure of authority. And he says, in every human relational dynamic, there is going to be a reality of a structure of those who are in oversight or authority and those who are under authority. In other words, some with power and some that are under the power of others. I don't mean that in that negative way that it sounds just a structure. In every relationship, whether it be marital relationships, parent-child relationships, uh, uh, workplace relationships, in all those relationships in the church, there is an authority structure. And just as a reminder, and Paul will say it as well on multiple occasions, this idea of authority and power and the use of power and being under authority and being in authority, that whole idea of authority is not an idea that our culture came up with or any culture. Where does that come from? That actually does come from God's kingdom. So he's not saying hey, I know you guys have this whole authority structure and people over other people in power. That's not how my kingdom works at all. In my kingdom, when you show up, there is no authority and no power and no one over anyone else and everyone's just kind of free to be exactly who they need to be. Is that how God's kingdom works? No, in God's kingdom, actually, there is ultimate power and ultimate authority and he holds all of it and we are all ultimately, totally submitted to him totally dependent on him, totally vulnerable before him. The difference between God's kingdom and our kingdom is that in God's kingdom, power and authority is not misused to lord over or use or misuse those who are under authority. In fact, it is used to protect, it is used uh, to, to encourage, it is used uh, to advance, it is used to serve those under authority. And those under authority in God's kingdom serve 
and honor and protect and encourage those who are in authority. In this case, God. We worship him. We serve him. And he what? Lavishes upon us his kindness for ages to come and serves us. And their power and authority, though it fully exists, has a purpose that our planet doesn't understand. And so in this chapter five, he deals with that. And he says, within the church, I want you to function in this natural reality of power and authority in a way that reflects my kingdom, not yours. Meaning, whether you are the one in authority and power or the one under authority and power, you are there to serve each other. And if you do that, then authority and power is an irrelevancy. They're both equal opportunities by which to serve. So you're with me so far. You might be saying, wow, that's a lot of repetition of everything we've already covered. But this time it's super important because the passage that's about to come does not make nearly as much wondrous sense unless you catch all of that. So that's where we're sitting. Now, here's what Paul's about to do. And this is where it gets wonderful and so exciting to dig into this little teeny tiny two verses we're covering tonight, okay? Paul is about to close out this section in his letter. Remember at the end of chapter four, he said to Timothy, teach these things even if they're hard. And then chapter five, two major themes. We are, Mm, it's good, it's good. Try that again. The answer is family, the answer is family. We are family, so behave like family. And within the family where there is power, authority, or vulnerability, make sure that you are dealing with power, authority, and vulnerability in a way that reflects my kingdom, not this kingdom. Care for the vulnerable and those in power, protect those who are not, and those who are not, serve those who are, because those are positions that just reflect my kingdom. There it is, okay? And now he's going to close this section out with a little thing, and then he's going to say right after that, so if anyone teaches anything but this, they are wrong. So this section comes to a close. The question becomes, how does he close this section out? What does he decide to do? Let's go take a look. So this is when you can grab your Bibles, and we can go and take a look. So we're going to go to the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in chapter 6 tonight, uh, opening into chapter 6, as we close out the section of the way we are to behave as the church who are trying to demonstrate the values of the kingdom specifically through love. And we've covered all that ground and now he does this. Chapter six, verse one. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that uh, they are brothers, but rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And then the the very next verse, there you can see it, just so you know, I'm I'm not making stuff up. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, it's wrong. So so that's it. That's the end of the section. Now, what's amazing is what Paul actually does here. Because at first glance, this seems totally out of place. There are two reasons why this seems out of place. One, he has been dealing with uh, relationships within the church, right? Uh, The older and the younger in the church, and then the vulnerable and the not vulnerable, widows and the rest of us, uh, and then the authority within the church, elders in the congregation. So he's like, this is how we deal together. And what did he just do? What does this relationship he just brought to the table, where does this relationship exist? 
Well, it exists in and outside of the church, but it's primarily an outside the church relationship, right? He suddenly just went, those of you that are bond servants with masters, here's how you are to deal with your masters. So he's still in the authority space, but he just leapt out of the church. So that's the first thing that makes this kind of seem out of place. And the other thing that makes this seem a little out of place from my vantage point is, boy, he just went controversial. He just went extreme, didn't he? It's like, he's like, hey, the older and the younger. Hey, the widows and the people. Hey, the elders and the congregation. Hey, the slaves and the masters. And you're like, whoa, time out. I don't think slave and master fits into the same category as the other things. Because it just feels like, wow. Why does it feel that way? It feels that controversial for two reasons. One that is rightly supposed to feel that controversial and one that is not. The one that is rightly supposed to feel that way is that this is a relationship that Paul is bringing to the table that kind of falls into that space of some of the harder, more complex relationships we will have as it deals with authority, right? Uh, That sudden relationship of where you are under someone who may or may not be a believer and they are in that outside world in our context, perhaps the workplace, the jerk boss, right? And you're like, ooh, wow, we just went all the way to the end to the main big thing. Yes, we did. And we'll get to that. But the other reason it feels so controversial is because of the words being used here. The words being used here, two of them in particular, one, bond servant, which if we can just be honest for a second, uh, the bond servant even feels a little nicer, though we don't like the word servant very much because, you know, servitude and all that. But you can also translate this Greek word uh, accurately and rightly to bond slave. Does that one sound better to you? You're like, whoa, no, I'm just, I just don't want to sugarcoat anything because, because it's not like bond servant so that we can pretend it's not bond slave. You can just easily just, you can, in fact, you can read it in some translations, bond slave, please make sure you honor your masters. So the reason it feels so big to us is because in our cultural context, when you use the word slave or bond slave even, and you use the word master, we only have one category for those two things because it is the only context in which we have experienced those words. It is all they mean in our culture. When we talk about a slave and their master, we are immediately in a category of great evil, are we not? Is the idea of slavery as we understand it and masters over people something that we should abhor and see as evil? This is not a trick question. Like this is not even remotely a trick question, okay? This is one where you just go immediately without apology and any fear and you rise to your feet and you go, yes, we should abhor any version in which some humans take other humans, enslave them to themselves, own them as property and do with them as they see fit with no choice of their own. Should we abhor that? Yes, and when we hear slave and we hear master, that is the category in which those two words fit, and it is the only category we have for those words rightly, because that's all they mean in our culture. We don't use master when we're talking about our boss at work. You don't go uh, to work and your supervisor, you go, yeah, you know, today I was just really excited about my master, uh, who was, we just don't use that kind of language in that context. Whenever you have words like this, that in your context means something very particular. And therefore you're like, huh, 
if that's what these two words mean that this person is writing, then we now know how they feel about that category. It is important when those words are coming out of a historical setting, in other words, centuries before, that we first go back and confirm, is that the only context in which these two words would have existed in Paul's time? Or is Paul meaning something more broad or something different? Well, it turns out when you travel back in time to Paul's time, these two words were not words that were exclusively attached to the idea that we know them as a human being taken by another human being, enslaved against their will, and then in that enslavery, treated like a possession instead of a human, and therefore mistreated deeply. Those two words, hear me carefully now, did represent that reality in Paul's day, in part. In other words, these are a set of words like many in our culture today that had multiple meanings. You could, if you said slave and master, be referring to that kind of slave and master. Is that evil? Yes. yes. Was it evil in Paul's time? Yes. yes. Okay. So you could be using those words that way. But those words were also typical language to be used in other categories of a relationship between a person and the person to, in which they were uh, working for or employed by. The category of their tie was different than ours. It was complex in ways ours is not and not complex in ways ours it is. But at the end of the day, in its simplicity, it worked this way. You could have a person that was working for another person. They were indebted to them or uh, they were part of uh, sort of this, you have to work for me, but I am going to pay you and I'm going to pay you. And when you have enough, then you will be free to be able to stop working for me. And we say, well, that's, that's not really fair. That sounds like a terrible slavery. I'm like, yeah, but let, let's, just, let's just put it into our category for a second. So, all of you guys, many of you here are young, so you haven't even begun to invest. Uh, but I'm telling you, right, at some point you're going to wake up and wish you started investing right now. Do you know why? What are you building toward? Now, most of you are like, I don't understand what you say. But anybody in this room that's like maybe over 35, you already know what you're building toward. We have this little word in our culture called retirement. Anybody heard of that before? Yeah, we're all actually headed toward retirement. That's what we want. And, and the trick is when you read articles of people that retired at like 43, you're like, oh, how do you do it? Because we have the 65 number and it feels kind of a long time, doesn't it? You're like, hold on a second. I got to work till I'm 65 before I can be free to go do whatever I want. Well, yeah, that's how it seems. Now, the difference in our culture is you have the freedom to move back and forth between employers. But what you don't have the freedom to do is just to stop working. Why not? Well, you could stop working, but if you do, guess what happens? You have no resources, become homeless, and depend on the, on, the, on the gracious acts of people handing you food, right? Or a thousand other possibilities. If you want to actually have resources, if you want to have a place to stay, a roof over your head and other things, then you've got to keep working until you've made enough money that you can sustain and you don't have to work then you can choose to work if you want. I know a number of friends who work at Publix or different places that are in that retirement age. And when I chat with them and I'm like, man, why are you still working? They're like, oh, I don't have to, but I was bored. So I came back. 
Now, they still have to live by all the same rules that all the other employees have to live by in their company, in this case, Publix, because friends I have there, I know. But the fact of the matter is they're choosing to work now because they don't really have to. In Paul's time, when you use the word bond slave, the bond part of the slave meant you were somebody that had already worked enough that you were able to purchase your freedom. In other words, not using it as we think of slavery, you were, be, you were essentially, in our category, able to retire, right? But then you chose because the place you worked for, the person you worked for in this case, was awesome. You're like, can I keep working here? And they would be like, sure. And they would keep paying you and you would have everything you want. The difference was in that culture, you didn't get to do like what our culture does. I'll work for you for seven minutes until I'm bored and then I'll leave. And you have this constant turnover. There you had a choice. You're either all in or you're all out. I kind of love that about that culture, that you were always kind of all in or all out, right? And so there you would say, I'm going to bind myself to you under your employment and the master would become the patron but the master would still be considered master. So when Paul is using this language, it is not the kind of controversial where he's, sa he's saying, slaves, 20th century version of that word, obey your masters, 20th century version of that word. He's not doing that because God abhors that. He is saying in his cultural time, those of you that are in authority over those of you that are employed by them, work for them, bound to them, for those under them, make sure that you are honoring them because that's what God's kingdom does. And he, he takes it to this extreme because he's trying to take chapter five, which is in the church, all these relational dynamics and say this, what kind of relationship excuses you and I from behaving as though we belong to the kingdom of God? None. None. There is no relationship you have with other humans that because that relationship is something, it excuses you from behaving like you're part of the kingdom of God. Now, are there relationships that are abusive and terrible and dangerous and you should get out of them and have boundaries and all that? Yes, 100%. That's not what we're talking about. But even in those, what it doesn't give you the right to do is to begin to behave in the same terrible manner. You with me? So what he's saying here is, in that relationship that is already kind of complex, man, even in that one, you who are under the master, man, honor them, not because they deserve your honor all the time, but because you belong to the kingdom and your position is now to represent the kingdom. Now, now watch this. This is so cool. In this particular passage, the reason Paul doesn't expand much on it and brings this to the end of chapter five is actually because of another letter that he wrote. So this letter was written in AD 62-63, okay? There were three letters sent with a person named Tychicus from Paul in Rome to the area in Ephesus uh, that happened a year to a year and a half before this. In AD 61-62, Paul wrote three letters, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. Ephesians was a letter written to which church? Ephesus and then the surrounding churches and Colossians to the church in Colossae and Philemon, wait for it, was written to a guy in the church in Colossae 
who had a bondservant named Onesimus who had broken that relationship and escaped from his master, breaking, if you will, in our language, that contract and, and, and shirking all of that responsibility, found Paul in Rome, became a follower of Jesus. And Paul says to Onesimus, go back to your master and go and make things right. And Onesimus is like, are you crazy? He's gonna like lock me back into the contract. And Paul's like, yeah, maybe, but I'll write him a letter. And I'm like, I don't know. And this letter, this beautiful short little letter basically says to uh, Philemon, listen, I could command you this, but I'm just gonna remind you this. Though Onesimus is certainly bound to you as someone who's under your authority, Onesimus is your brother. And in God's kingdom, regardless of your position of authority or servitude to authority, you are brothers and sisters, so you treat each other like family. Family is family. And when you treat people like family because they are family, you can never have toward them an attitude that would enslave them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Slavery is not actually something that in of itself is the problem. It's terrible and it's a problem. Don't mishear me there. But slavery comes from an attitude within us that says one human is less valuable than another. In our country, we know this happened because long after slavery was abolished in our country, you could still have one person say to another person, both of whom were adults, hey boy, come and do this. That is the attitude from which slavery is born. Do you understand what I'm saying? And what Paul is saying here is, if you are family and you treat each other like family and you value each other like brothers and like brothers and sisters, then you can never ever use either your authority or under authority to usurp or to, or to misuse or to control. You are just going to see those positions as means to serve the kingdom. So Paul had already written this long letter to Philemon that had circulated a year before. He'd written in the book of Ephesians an entire chapter on how the church in Ephesus should behave toward each other in relationships like husband and wife and child and parent. And do you know what the third category is that he used when he was talking about how families should interact? You'll never guess. Bond, slave, and master. Because in that culture, the bond, slave, and master relationship was in the home and it was part of the family structure. So Paul now, watch this, watch this, follow me. Paul now takes the same reference he made in the book of Ephesians a year earlier about bond, servant, and master as part of the family structure and he brings it in here as the last example. Even in the relationship of bond, servant, and master, you are representing which kingdom? God's kingdom. You are people belonging to which kingdom? God's kingdom. And in every relationship, in every dynamic, look to that dynamic and ask yourself, how can I be a representation of whose kingdom? God's kingdom. Because on this kingdom, we know how they deal with stuff. Those in power use their power for themselves. Those under power try to undermine those in power to get power so that they can be in power and use their power for themselves. And God's kingdom comes along and says, those in power protect and serve those who are not. Those who are not uh, serve and honor and protect those who are. That's how God's kingdom works because they're family and they just have different positions through which they are reflecting God's kingdom. You with me so far? So now Paul says to the church in Ephesus and to us, at the end of the day, your purpose now as followers of Jesus is to represent the kingdom of God, to live by the values of the kingdom of God. 
which is at its foundation love. It is at its foundation a love that functions within the bounds and beauty of family. We treat each other as equals no matter our position or no matter what part we play in the story of authority. Those who are in authority or those who are under authority. That will exchange throughout your life in different categories. Whichever category you find yourself in, you are family with the other person, and so you treat them and love them with that which you're given, either servant or master. Those categories are only a category that changes value in the culture of which kingdom? This one. But in God's kingdom, they are irrelevant as far as your value. They are only relevant as far as the way you get to love others. So elders, masters, bosses, if that's your category, then use what God has given you to serve those whom you lead and over whom you have authority. Employees, servants, whatever other category, if that's you, then use that position to serve and to honor those who are over you. And when those who are over you are jerks, then you don't get to be a jerk. When those over you are abusive, then get help and get out. But you still can't behave like a jerk. You understand what I'm saying? You make other plans. But we're not talking about the terrible, abusive, horrible things. We're just talking about the regular relationships in which the people in authority over us are not behaving super well. And they're just kind of a jerk. You don't get to be a jerk. You get to actually love them well. And I hope they're not a jerk. That'll be wonderful. If you are the boss, stop being a jerk if you're a jerk. And serve the people under you well. That's what Paul is saying. What he's basically saying to us, to you and to me, is if you're part of the kingdom of God, then please represent what? The kingdom of God. Love one another well. Show the world how his kingdom flows. Because someday we're going to leave this kingdom and be in his kingdom. And there will still be family. And there will still be authority except that it will be the perfect representation of what family and authority should be. And those of us under authority will worship and honor God, and those in authority, God himself, will protect and lavish upon us his kindness. Let us do the same and no less, and we will show the world what God's kingdom is like. And now what Paul's going to do is say this. So, now that we've covered all the ground, taking it all the way to the extreme, masters and servants... If anyone teaches you otherwise, they're wrong. Don't listen to them. But that's for next week. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us and the amazing ways in which you continue to challenge us and charge us as your people to abandon the thinking and the ways of our culture, whichever culture we might find ourselves in, in this case, us and our Western American version of culture, and to bind ourselves to the values and realities of your culture, of your kingdom. And in your kingdom, God, we are family. We are for each other, not for ourselves. We are in positions, whether a position of authority as master or a position of service as servant. We are in those positions, not stuck in them or not catapulted into them, but in them, to reflect and to demonstrate your kingdom in unique and different ways. Those of us that follow you that are in the master category in its broadest sense, we are in charge of something. We are 
in authority in some way. Would you help us to use our position of authority to love, to serve, to protect, to lavish upon those under our, who are under authority with kindness so that they might know your kingdom through us. And for those of us that are in the broad category of servant, we are in some way under someone's authority in whichever relational dynamic that is. Would you help us in that position to serve those in authority over us, to honor those, to protect those in authority over us because we are citizens of your kingdom, children of you, and we represent what your kingdom is like. God, may we, as the people of God, stop obsessing ourselves with the way our culture thinks about the different positions out there. And may we instead just see each position as another opportunity by which we can demonstrate the values of your kingdom and love well because the aim is love and the behaviors that reflect your kingdom's love are a submission to each other for your glory and for your sake, regardless of the position from which we are submitting or serving or leading. Show us the way we want to be people that are great ambassadors for you instead of people that live for ourselves. We love you, Jesus. Amen.